It is with excitement that I get to share with you that the Leukaemia Foundation has developed a new resource. This resource is called the Online Support Service, where it provides a wealth of services to assist a person living with blood cancer throughout their patient journey. So whether you're a patient who has just been diagnosed, in treatment or in survivorship, this service provides access to targeted learning modules, a suite of amazing services and online programs. And you also have the ability to chat with an experienced blood cancer support coordinator at just one click. It gives people a personalised and intuitive way to learn about important topics, including what to expect beyond treatment. This service is simple to use and is filled with content curated by the Leukaemia Foundation for people with any type of blood cancer. It notably features a digital energy coach to help patients manage fatigue. So jump onto our website and look up our new and exciting product called the Online Blood Cancer Support Service. You get to a point in life where you think you're in control of everything and uh, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it gets taken out from underneath you. I guess I kind of felt ripped off. It's just living in the moment and just being adaptable to situations. Give people voices to talk about, Do you know what, that phase is often the hardest and be prepared for it because it's not what you think it will be. Talking Blood Cancer, a podcast for those facing blood cancer by the Leukaemia Foundation find the best way forward using their own purpose that they have in their life and using their passions. I've lost fear and doubt. Like I no longer doubt myself in situations and nothing scares me. That gives you another goal to work towards and and a reason to live. I'm Kate Arkadip, and I am the host of Talking Blood Cancer. This podcast shares the stories of the people we have connected with who have faced a blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. Before we get into today's episode, the Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we share these stories. We recognise their continuing connection to land, sea and community as the first storytellers of this country. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone, or even if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to contact one 800 620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. 
Hi there, and welcome to today's episode of Talking Blood Cancer. Today, you will hear the conversation that Marianne had with Jennifer Marks. Jennifer is such a remarkable young lady who shares insight into being diagnosed at such a young age with a condition that is more prevalent in the older age bracket. It was in 2012 when Jennifer was 27 years of age and was diagnosed with myeloma. She shares with Marianne how she has navigated the healthcare system, how she's managed treatment and relationships, and how her experience with not one, but two autologous transplants was. So good morning. Um, I feel really excited to be welcoming and having some time and spending time with um, Jennifer Marks. Uh, we'll, we'll just say Jen for um, you know familiarity purposes and just for ease of conversation. So thanks, Jen, for joining us here this morning. Uh, to start things rolling, I think it's best if we if we look at um, giving you some time to explain who you are, uh, where you were at at diagnosis, and what have you been diagnosed with. Over to you. Thank you very much for the intro. Um, so I'm Jen. I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma when I was 20, I think it was like 15 days before my 27th birthday. I was very sick for a very long time. Um, and misdiagnosed for a very long time. So when I was diagnosed, there was a, a huge sense of relief because I thought I was going a bit crazy, if I'm being honest. So I had all sorts of, I had like every bacterial infection under the sun come and hit me. I had lots of women issues. I had, um, I was initially diagnosed with hypogammaglobulin anemia, excuse me to anyone who's okay. listening who knows if I'm saying that incorrectly. But um, so uh, a year before diagnosis. Can I ask what were the types of things you were experiencing? Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, so I I would be exhausted. So mm-hmm. I'm the sort of person, it's hard for me to sleep at the best of times, but I'd fall asleep just standing up on a wall kind of thing. I'd get heart palpitations that would actually wake me up in my sleep. My, I had really sore, like I, I've always been a bit of a gym head, but it got to the point where I could barely walk because my joints and my legs and stuff were just, the, the pain and the inflammation was terrible. Um, mm. lots of women infections, women issues. Yeah. There's just a lot, lots of different things. So like at one stage, I think I had, um, I had really, really bad flu at the same time as having conjunctivitis in both eyes at the same time. As- oh, you poor darling. So mm. it was just a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was initially diagnosed with a blood disorder, which essentially, um, just meant that I was lacking the immunoglobulins within my blood to, pro- to provide me with some sort of immunity. So I started getting blood transfusions, blood product transfusions every four weeks. I uh, started okay. to get a little bit better um, and then it started to get a lot worse. Um, mm-hmm. So just plodding along as I was doing my treatment um, and then my haematologist. So were you under the sup- yeah, you were under the supervision of a haematologist? Yep, absolutely. So I'd been under the supervision okay. of a haematologist for about a, probably a year, a year and a half. Um, okay. And on this one particular mm-hmm. day when I was getting my treatment, um, he just came and sat on the edge of the chair I was getting my treatment in and asked me to stay over the weekend. My kidneys, creatinine had exploded. Um, my heart was failing. It was just all happening. So I was stayed. I was diagnosed, I think, a day or two later with multiple myeloma, sorry, and um, was put on to And who was with you at that time? When I was diagnosed, my immediate mm. family were with me. Um, to be honest, that part's a bit of a blur. It's kind of like... In the movies where they show when people find out information, it's like tunnel vision where you don't. Yep. <laughs> like that. I um. But very surreal. Yeah, I was just very much like, okay, cool. At least I have something to work with, and it's not in my head. 
and hopefully I can get better from here. So, you know, in saying that uh, you had a diagnosis that you then had an understanding of what was happening with you and you could get some proper direction and some proper attention for the condition that you had, mm-hmm. was that a relief? Absolutely. Or it was? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there was a definite fear in there. Like I'd, I'd heard yeah, absolutely. Be, being being in the ward already, getting my transfusions, I'd heard horror stories mm. about um uh, stem cell transplants and I didn't know what that really I knew I had to get a stem cell transplant I didn't know what that meant in terms of donor or non-donor and I was, it was scary I'm not I'm not saying it wasn't but overall it was just a sense of absolute relief so you were 28 at the time were you working I was or 27, life look? 20, 27 27 and working full-time going to the gym four or five times a week um I was oh. at, the, at that point I was on a bit of a health journey I'd been quite big before so I'd been on a health journey started losing a lot of weight was really taking care mm-hmm. of myself um yeah <laughs> so emotionally um for you Jen what was that time like for you because I know people who make a commitment to health and well-being and who get on that pathway of eating well and doing exercise there's there's a shift in in our emotional yeah um well-being at that time too but then it sounds to me like you know you had a lot of other health issues that were challenging you yeah um at the same time I think it was such a mixed bag every single Mm. day was different in terms of how I was feeling I mean physically obviously I was feeling crap but um mentally was a real mixed bag I yeah I suppose well first and foremost the cancer itself and uh, to be honest, I would never take the cancer back. The cancer has been, I would take the fact that it's incurable back, but the, the cancer yeah. the cancer itself absolutely empowered me as a human being. It's made me more confident. I really learnt, I, I had a lot of self-doubt before the cancer in terms of yep. um, whether people liked me, if I was any good, if I was smart, imposter syndrome. Um, and then the out, pure outreach from people from nooks and crannies I hadn't spoken to in forever just absolutely blew me away and it's definitely given me a real sense of self and made me absolutely a much better human being. So in that way, it was very positive, a very positive experience for me. It was a struggle, absolutely, like watching my family. I had quite old parents, so watching them, it, it devastated them, it broke them, and that was hard. It would have. It yeah. hard. But with that being said, it's also strengthened my relationship with my mother. I didn't have the greatest relationship with her growing up and now we're friends, which is fantastic. Um, oh. Yeah, but did you live with them at the time? No, so yeah. I moved out of home very early. No. I moved out of home at seventeen, um, so I okay. wasn't living with them. Very, very, very fiercely independent. Independent. When, when I got diagnosed, they were trying to get me to move home. I'm like, no, never. So I've been very independent. Didn't live with them, which I suppose scared them even more. Um, yep. But as I said, very independent. So we locked horns a little bit on uh, how much I was allowed to do on my own, but. Uh, being that fiercely independent person when it came to the time that they you needed to open the doors and allow them in, was that was that a struggle? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Mm. Even, even just I've never been a big crier, but like openly crying in front of them, it was, it was oh, very, hard, very, very humbling. <laughs> very, very hard for me. Um, but as I said, ultimately it, it I suppose it made me re- look at my family or look at my parents particularly more human than you know when you're a kid you don't really look at your parents in that way and um I guess the role I felt like a bit of a role reversal I felt like I had to be the parent in the situation I, I was more worried about them than I was about myself 
Okay. So when you were diagnosed with myeloma, multiple myeloma, um, did you approach that being the researcher wanting to know all about the disease and what treatments you were about to embark upon? Were you a information gatherer or you, were you someone who just placed your faith in your treating specialist and your treating team and just took on what they were prepared to tell you about your condition? A bit of both. So I'm... I'm a bit of both? Yeah, I'm fiercely against Google doctoring. I'm fiercely against that. Right, I think that, good. I think that that's <laughs> a terrible way to go. Um, but I'm a, I am the sort of person, if, if a doctor tells me something, I will ask a million questions. I, I uh-huh. actively... Um, had a note diary in my phone so every time a question came to my head I'd write it down to make sure I could ask the question at my appointment so I I, I want to know the good the bad I want to I like a blunt answer don't sugarcoat things mm-hmm. to me um but at the same time how did you communicate that too with how did you communicate that that exact idea of please don't sugarcoat things did you actually say that or <laughs> I how is that communicated to your treating I'll, team I'm, I'm pretty blunt I, I don't want any bullshit just tell me how it is essentially so um, I'm very much that way. I'm very pragmatic. So um, it worked for me. I'd rather have all the information at my hands, all the correct information, which is why I didn't Google it. Um, but, yeah, so it's a bit of, bit of both, I suppose. Okay. So you were living alone at the time or were I was you living, living? I was living with a flatmate. With a flatmate. Yeah. Okay. So did you remain in that um, living situation or did you choose to move back home where you had some support around you? What were so through the chemotherapy, so six months of chemotherapy, through that I stayed mm-hmm. at home with my flatmate. Um, okay. When I had my stem cell transplant, I um, moved in just for I think it was a six or seven-week period with um, some family friends who actually were nurses at the same hospital. So um, okay second family to me so I was in good hands with them and I didn't have my parents that on my back as well so it was a little bit more relaxing for me but it gave them the peace of mind that I was being looked after. So did was that a difficult time to manage that communication with family and you know the the balance I guess around needing your own space and how to process things and how to get through the day and make some informed choices about how you're wanting to spend time and health and well-being um but you know recognizing and respecting that your parents are you know their role you're the baby girl regardless of um yeah um having to give up independence was very 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 hard for me um it caused some big dramas um i can give you an example Mm -hmm. of one particular drama so i um i had developed a shake tremor and um we, oh, were, tremor. we didn't know really much about what, what that was but my dad and I went to see my hematologist about it and my hematologist gave me a prescription for it so we went to the shopping center to get the prescription filled and my dad my dad wasn't particularly well at the time himself but um he said I'll come to the chemist with you and we had a we had a blowout about it I was like no I can go to the chemist my damn self I'm an adult I'll go to the chemist we had a big fight and he ended up just he, he got really upset at me he's like fine go yourself Two hours later, my father gets a phone call from my mother who was at work saying that I was on my way to the hospital in an ambulance because I'd handed in my prescription and I immediately collapsed, collapsed and had a grand mal seizure in the middle of the pharmacy. Oh, so <laughs> that that was um, my dad never really recovered from that. And so I think at that point I had to give up a bit of the independence and just be like, I can't. I, how do you? 
I felt terrible. I felt terrible. I mean, I know I felt mm. terrible, but I felt terrible. And I can't imagine how my, my dad we crushed him. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're quite humbling, you know, um, life circumstances yeah. where lessons are learned. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, from both sides, you know, that um, your dad needing to respect your independence and give you that little bit of space so that you can make some decisions. But um, for you, that opportunity to see that they, they're just offering to be there and support yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and maybe what they could see at that time was the very vulnerable you. Yeah. But the lion inside you wanted to be that um, brave person being able to maintain that um, independence and Absolutely. and which which I think in some ways and correct me if I'm wrong that's possibly a survivorship um, trait oh absolutely absolutely um I think yes I think being independent definitely helped me push through it but at the time I was young mm-hmm. and I I wasn't good at being vulnerable at all and um, I always saw vulnerability as a weakness whereas once you get sick and you go through all the thing it wasn't until everything in the dust had settled and I was at home recovering from the transplant that I started to really understand vulnerability as a strength and not a weakness. Um, and I think that that's essentially why I turned a corner into the sort of person I am today rather than in comparison, sorry, to the person I was then. I love that vulnerability as a strength, not a weakness. Can you talk through how you got to that realization a little bit deeper, if that's okay? Yeah, yeah. So, what are the turning points? What you know, what was happening for you that made you, you know, made that resonate differently for you? Um, look, I think therapy obviously was a huge, huge part of it. Um, but okay, who did you have therapy with? Um, a, a psychologist. I, I still see now. Okay. I still see now. Right. She's um, right. Yeah, she's incredible. I I can't recommend psychology or counselling enough to anyone going through this journey. I think it's... I love that you've mentioned that because often it's seen as a, you know, if we have a broken leg, we, we certainly we lean on a crutch, don't we? Yeah. For the duration of time until we build the strength in that limb. Absolutely. To to, to walk again. Yet n- no one looks at the broken spirit or the, you know, really? the broken, you know, inner self that may need that, you know, that that guidance and that yeah, assistance. Absolutely. So uh, I'm glad that you've mentioned that because it, it is something that not many people reach out of course, illness and not being able to participate and connect to the world that you used to sit in, yeah, of course, does leave you vulnerable. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, that would be, I think, a really important message to to share with people about, um, you know, exploring how to work through that time, you yeah. know, how to identify vulnerability. Yeah. So... Mm. And I think when, I, when I've gone to a couple of the Leukemia Foundation support groups, I, I, I've realised that I wasn't alone in this for a long time. I thought I did. But I, I found the period of recovery after the transplant the hardest part of the whole journey because when you're in it, you literally have one task and that's to follow the to follow the instructions of the doctors to get better. That's literally all you have at that point in time and then you're left to your own devices and you're left to rebuild essentially. And that was the hardest part for me. And I really struggled with it. And being unable to be vulnerable made me struggle with it more. And I got into my own head and I was in a dark place and it wasn't great. So working with a psychologist and having them reframe things in a way that, hang on, no, you don't have to be like that to be strong just because 
just because you don't cry, that doesn't mean make you a strong person. That just makes you a, a person who's blocking your emotions. And you, it's hard to get through and I'm still not great at it, but I'm, so, <laughs> I'm certainly. But you think that's part of being human? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm not criticizing myself for it. I'm not criticizing myself. It's just an observation, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And just learning the coping mechanisms that allow you as a person, specific person to be vulnerable. Not everyone's going to be the sort of person that, I don't know, puts on Grey's Anatomy and has a cry and that's how they deal with things. But as long as you're dealing with it in some way, for me, it's talking to my psychologist and training at the gym are the, my ways of dealing with things. As long as you have that, that thing, that's your outlet, I think um, you're able to be a bit more vulnerable. Well, it's choosing from what you've just mentioned there. Um, you know, you, you briefly mentioned a toolkit, your psychologist in the gym. So it's making some informed choices, but recognising too. So sitting back and observing yourself and recognising what brings you joy, what adds to your strength to help you face different, yeah. you know, the next day, so to speak. A- absolutely. And it's interesting you say that because... I re- actually relapsed. So I relapsed during COVID. Um, so oh. I went through the whole thing again, which is yeah. ex- expected. It's an incurable cancer. Um, mm-hmm. And I've come out the end now and COVID and all that happened. So it was sort of hard to get all your ducks in a row and get life back on track for everybody, let alone someone who's been through that. And I'm at the point now and I'm like, I, I got to a bit of a dark place and I-, I need a purpose and I need what it is for me. And like gym and all that's great. Um, so at the moment I'm going through the journey in two weeks time, I'm adopting a puppy. So that's going to be giving myself the purpose. I can't have my own children. So this is going to be my baby. Um, and then also through the leukemia foundation, um, support groups and stuff like that, which, uh, and being able to be a peer as well in those groups has really given me a purpose. So it's about finding what that purpose is that can turn the negative experience into something positive for other people has been a big help for me. I love that. That's choices that also um, give you connection. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love the word purpose, purpose, passion and perspective. They're the three P's that I know, um, you know, a lot of patients over many years have shared with me um, and making some choices around, well, what are the ingredients that I need in my world that can bring that, absolutely. you know, can add value to my days. And puppies. So, puppies. And then puppy. <laughs> so you mentioned that, um, you know, that children aren't an option for you. How was that for you? Like when were you told what, you know, fertility is something that I think isn't really um, approached, addressed. Was that something that was brought up prior to you starting treatment? Um right. No, um, which was hard, very, very hard. So the, yeah. the only thing in my life that I've known from being small that has been a definite in my life that I've wanted is children. Um, yeah. As I said, when I started feeling sick, a lot of it was female issues. It started as misdiagnosis of polycystic ovaries and endometriosis and then infections and all sorts yeah. of things. So there was already some doubt as to whether or not I'd be able to have kids, but the door wasn't shut. Mm-hmm. Then I was diagnosed. So a lot of pain. You've dealt with a lot of pain. Your threshold must be quite high. Huh, yeah. Yay. <laughs> Yay me. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I think it is, but, you know, it is what it is. I've got my other issues, I'm sure. but um, That's acceptance. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I was diagnosed with cancer at, I think, I mean, I don't think there's te- technically stages in myeloma, but if you were to put a stage on it, I'd be told it was mm-hmm. stage five. What, where I was diagnosed, right. so I was very, very sick. 
So I didn't have any opportunity to even have that conversation. Um, I was put on chemotherapy within 12 hours of diagnosis, at which point I sparked up and asked the question and I was basically got told we don't have, we can't, we, we can't test aviaries, we can't do anything at this stage. So that door was shut. Um, I had looked into things like adoption and that sort of thing, but um, adoption in Australia for can I, can I Can I just interrupt there? You know, so that door was shut. How did you digest that information as a female of 27, 28 years of age? It was in the prime of your life, really. Yeah. How did you really die? How did you digest that information? It was probably the toughest part of the journey emotionally. Um, yeah. I, I can't even say that now. I mean, I accept it now, but it's not, I wouldn't say that I. I accept it, but I don't accept it. I don't know how to articulate it. But it, it was, it, yep. without, sorry for swearing, but it was shit. It was crap. Yeah. And um, especially because I was at a time where my friends were starting to get married and have kids. I was single. Mm. So I'm at a time when if I'm meeting new people, that's the question they're going to want to ask. They're going to want to talk about kids. And how do I yeah. bring that up? And at what point of dating do I bring up that I can't have kids? And it's been mm. a big, big problem to date, to be honest with you, up until maybe... The last two years, I've, had, I've really struggled with it. I'm, I'm a lot better with it now and I'm better with introducing cancer to new people and all that sort of thing. I just kind of rip mm. the bandaid off and I tell them at the very start, even put bald faces yeah. of me on my Tinder account because I'm just like you may as well just, if they want to ask the question, they can, but they know. Um, so it's hard. But you're such a beautiful young lady with, you know, the world's your oyster and, you know, um, even just facing the challenges of, having myeloma at such a young age, relapsing at a later age. How old are you now? I'm 30, 37. 37. So for the last 10 years, you've been on this on this journey, you know, living with myeloma and the challenges that that brings, treatment and and also those years when, you know, as you say, your friends are marrying, having children, you're having to navigate how you should hold a conversation when you, you have that vulnerable side. Yeah. That must have been very difficult, difficult last 10 years very, and continue yeah, to be. Very, very difficult. It's it's not I'm, – I'm a bit of an enigma in that I'm, I'm an open book and I think that that's a, co- yep. it's a coping mechanism is that I just – I tell you everything up the spot um, and I think it's a coping mechanism. It's better to get it out and see how people react. As I've gotten older and I've relapsed again and I've lost the, I call them the golden years where I thought maybe it's not going to come back, I've lost that. So I'm trying to get, even to this day, trying to accept the fact that this is my life and it's going to keep happening. I've gotten a bit better at just being like, well, effort, this is what I am, this is, I can't do anything about it. I may as well be completely blunt about it up front because I want to weed weed out the people that aren't ready to battle that with me. But it's it's hard. Like I don't I don't want to be that person. Like you lose. It feels like I lose a sense of um, woman, a sense of like identifying as a woman by not having that. I had and I've had a hysterectomy now as well. So it's all it's hard. So yeah, it would be very hard. Acceptance is it, it would be quite difficult. Very difficult and having to reframe and, you know, refocus and re-energise and and try and fill that bucket when you do have a sort of a, a sense of loss. Yeah. Well, it is a loss. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't, that wouldn't be easy for you at all. But, you, ha- you, you know, you, you, you are managing that. You are managing that. And, just, you know, that's the strength within. Pardon? I just don't, like, 
I guess <laughs> this is where imposter syndrome comes in for me. And I don't know, you, you, you've spoken to mm. many other people in a similar situation, but everyone's like, oh, you manage it well and you're so strong. But it's like, it's not like it's an option. I don't, no. I've never gone into it thinking, oh, I have to be strong, be strong, Jennifer. It's not, I don't understand. And please tell me, are other people you're talking to saying the same thing? It's like, well, what other option do I have? It's very true. And I love that you've brought that up because, you know, those those pass away comments that um, people in the society can make saying, oh, you know, you look beautiful and you've got such a happy demeanor and, you know, you're an achiever, you've, you know, you're amazing, you've had this transplant, yet you look fabulous. Um, What you share with me verbally is that you've had, you know, um, a transplant and several relapses and, you know, quite confronting things, yet you look like you've got it all together. You go to the gym, you know, um, they don't see that daily void, I guess, that you continue to work with, Absolutely. walk with. Absolutely. Mm. Daily, like, this is something actually that I learned through the Leukemia Foundation. I joined my first support group a while ago. Now. Oh, yes. But um, yep. I'd always thought I was alone in this. Or I thought, so doctors always told me that there's no reason for it, but like I'm exhausted. Like I wake up days mm. and I'm just like I'm almost exhausted as I was when I was on chemotherapy. And like I'm like, is this depression? Is this? So I've learned now about you know issues with chemo, long-term chemo use, causing issues. And like okay, so the exhaustion is explainable. But then I look fine and I don't have cancer now. So why are you so tired? And I don't want to say to people like I sound like a broken record. But there are days yeah. where it's really hard to get out of bed. <laughs> There are days yeah. on my work day, I just have to, on my lunch break, I have to go sleep. I have to, like, I can't. That, and that's what I struggle with. I struggle yeah, you with would. being able to have a norm- normalcy, normalcy? Be norm- normalcy. Normalcy within <laughs> the time that I'm not going through chemotherapy at now and I don't know how long it's going to be until I relapse again. But, like, I, and then you worry about when I relapse again, how tired am I going to be after that time? Yeah, I imagine that'd be all really, actually real worries that you would hold on to, that you would wonder and guess, uh, you know, and you've got to place them. But the beauty I I see in you in in sharing that you like someone, you, you are someone who likes to talk things through, in the many years that I've walked alongside people with blood cancer, those that do give themselves the opportunity to express and say everything that they're worrying about out loud, it does diffuse the intensity of what they walk with. It doesn't take it away. Absolutely. But in, in, in some way, it, it just gives some clarity or gives some, as you say, joining our online support groups. How valuable is that? Oh, and I'm glad mm-hmm. you found value in that, Jen, because I, I must say, having worked for the Leukemia Foundation since 1995, so a long time. A very long time. And I'm still in touch with people that I met back in 1995, myeloma patients as well. Um, One of the things that I walk daily with is their ability to really put that perspective on what is and they have an acceptance like no other. Yeah. It's it's a it's 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 a unique way of looking at how to embrace life. Uh, I think. I mean. for me, I guess I suppose it would come naturally to anyone with this diagnosis because if you didn't just accept it, like how miserable would your life be? I mean, yeah, I, 
I think if I didn't accept it, it'd be a, I'd be a very different person. I'd be a miserable person. And I'm not saying I haven't had times where I have felt like mm. that. Of course I have. But you have to accept it. it yeah, is, there are people. That's my mantra. It is what it is. It is what it is. And that is something that I've heard often blood cancer patients say. It is what it is. And whilst I can, I will. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And, you know, where I can, I will. Yeah. So, you know, um, talking about hot flushes at such a young age, you, age, you went into menopause. Yeah. Um, how was that time for you? <sighs> Awful. Awful. Mm. So I, I was very lucky that I eventually found a very, very empathetic gynecologist. Um, but uh-huh. when I got into menopause... I didn't get the good part of menopause. I was bleeding nonstop for six months, so which is why in oh, the end, my goodness. why in the end, I ended up just opting for the hysterectomy. Um, mm. So initially, I have to be on hormones, obviously, just to protect myself mm-hmm. from osteoporosis and all those sorts of things. Um, so I was put on um, HRT, hormone replacement therapy, right? And it was just awful because no matter which chemist I went to, I would always get the oh, you're very young to be taking this. It's just like, shit, uh. give me the medicine. Like, I'm well aware. <laughs> Thank you for pointing it out. Like, and so that was yes. Um That would have been. Again, it's just that, you know, that confrontation yeah. around what's your reality. Yeah. You don't need it I don't in your face. Tell me. Like, I know. Thank you. And, like, I know it's coming from a good place and it's coming from a place mm. with them being concerned, but just, like, also shut up. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Jen, have you been a journaler? Have you been someone who has taken pen to paper to help you through different times over the years? No, I should be. I should be. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been mm-hmm. told to write books even just about funny hospital stories and some of the people that I've met in the hospitals. And they, I should be, but I'm not. Okay. I think I think I, I talk about it enough. I, I feel like a broken record. <laughs> feel like my friends. A beautiful broken record. record. Thank you. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think what I find unique about you is, of course, your age, plus also having myeloma at such a young age. I mean, I know two ladies um, here in Brisbane who are similar age to you who walk with myeloma, and I know that they'd be they're looking forward to hearing this conversation because, like you say, um, connecting with people is is a strength because you don't have that sense of feeling so alone Absolutely. in the world. And alone is mm. the exact right word. Um, having this this particular cancer at my age has mm. been incredibly lonely. I've um, I, You've met two people my age. I've not met anyone even close. The, the closest I've met when I was 27 was I think 43 was the closest I've ever met. Um, okay. And it's just a very different situation. So... Mm. people who are in their 60s or 70s dealing with the cancer, they're dealing with, I mean, they're already married, they are already got their life sorted, they've probably already had yeah. kids. So their struggles are very different to mine. They're not having to look at things like infertility and hysterectomies and they're not going to have to have to look a whole year of relapsing. I've already had two transplants. How many more am I going to have? But they don't have mm. that. They have 60, 70 years old. They might have 20 years of it, which I'm not saying is great and I'm not minimising it at mm. all, but that's my entire life. And Yeah, that's hard to hard. hard to accept. It's back to acceptance, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard to and having, it's just hard to grapple with, I guess. Like what is mm. that? And as I said, the exhaustion, like how, how much worse is that gonna get? Um mm. How do you pro- how do you process that? I sleep when I sleep. 
That's it. I, I, I unashamedly do what I need to do for myself. Um, mm-hmm. I'm lucky that I work with, with a company who are incredibly empathetic and caring. Um, so they give me all the flexibility I need. So I'm lucky in that sense. But I've gotten to the point, I used to be very much, I get FOMO really badly and I never wanted to say no to my friends. Now I tell my friends, you're lucky if I say yes, because chances are I don't want to go. And <laughs> if I want to stay in sleep, I'm happy to put the cancer card to do it. And mm-hmm. all I can say to anyone listening, play that cancer card. You, you have that cancer card in your hand. And I'm not saying play it willy-nilly, but take something positive from the experience because if you're feeling crap because you have cancer, milk it, use it to your advantage and do what you need to do to make yourself feel better mentally and physically. Absolutely. So in, in you know, and when you look at work-life balance and look at things that bring you joy, um, how do you manage that? Okay, so... What do you build into your week? Um, so as I said, my job, my work are fantastic. Uh, in, so mm-hmm. fantastic, in fact, that when I went through cancer the last time I um I insisted on working through the whole chemotherapy the only time I had off I mean I worked part-time but the only time I had off was for my transplant when I had to be in isolation so they're just incredibly amazing so even taking this time they're allowing me to take time to do with charities or do with this particular Mm -hmm. charity I'm allowed to take I think it's one or two days a month just to focus on that paid like they're just but you know but, but you know what I love hearing about that Jen is that you've made a decision to actually put it to, the, to them because it's important for you. Yeah. I think we, we, you know, as individuals, I think we lose sight of the different choices that we do make for ourselves and you've made that choice as well and they've been good enough to support you in that choice. Absolutely. And, like, I think, I think mm. I've proven to them through working through mm. cancer and wanting to, I, I think it's give take. So as I've proved mm-hmm. myself to be a good employee, a loyal employee, a loyal employee, yep. sorry, and um, they're more than happy to come to the party. Accommodate you. Yeah. And so that's your work life, your other life. How's that uh, How's that going? Look, it's pretty good. I've, I've probably become a bit more recluse than I used to be, mm-hmm. which is fine, I guess. Um, but, like, I have a, a big friendship network. I constantly just catching up with people nothing too crazy I'm not really going out clubbing or anything like that anymore but um yeah I I I, I'm a social person absolutely I I love Mm -hmm. home but I also love to be around people so um and my cat so me my cat my soon-to-be dog and my friends so how do you think your cat will go with the dog (laughs) (laughs) she can hear you um (laughs) look I don't I don't know. It's, it's it's a bit of a concern. My hope is that it will be like one of those YouTube videos where they're the best of friends and I get home and they're cuddling. That's that's my hope, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see what happens. And what kind of dog is it? It's a Cavoodle, Cavoodle called Franklin. Oh, and you're adopting it? Yeah, well, buying yeah. It's, it. It's, I'm buying it. See, I'm a big animal person. I'd love to have gotten mm. a rescue, but you just don't know the background. And with the cat, you know, I'd, I'd had, I couldn't risk it. Um, yeah, true. So for now, I'll just get. I'm adopting off a breeder, off an ethical breeder, um, and I pick him up in two weeks. How exciting! Great. How exciting! And you've called him Franklin. Franklin. Why Franklin? I was looking for an old man name. I think oh, I like old man names for dogs. And I went through a few. I was Reggie Reginald for a while, but then I found out my friend's sisters, Cavoodles Reginald, was Leroy, and I went through. I have a whole list in my phone of old man names for dogs. <laughs> but I settled on Franklin in the end. So listening to, and so you've joined our um, online support group space 
and I would imagine you may have looked at our webinars and yeah, I've looked our at education. Webinars. I've actually joined, and I think the first kickoff call is next week, uh, peer support, youth peer support. So there's one of four okay. of us are going to be youth peer support leaders and we're, we're working on a program for that. So that's I'm very excited about that. Who's that with? Oh, give me a minute. I can't remember her name. I'm so sorry. Hang on. Oh, that's okay. You mentioned that, you know, you struggled with uh, having conversations when you, you know, when you're dating and when you meet people for the first time about your lived experience with blood cancer and are you able to share, you know, what those conversations look like or do you feel comfortable about your struggles and what led you to, you know, your current conversations and how you approach it and how you feel about things now? So up until, I guess, I finished chemotherapy the last time around, it was very hard for me. I um, mm. When do you tell someone? At what point do you tell them? Are they going to run away? Are they going to want kids? It was hard and I, I never knew when to bring it up. Um, I guess it kind of just depended on the person I was talking to and I just sort of bring it up at the right point. Um, but it was never easy and I didn't have much success in terms of holding on to that guy once you tell them. Um, this new time around, <laughs> I was very much like girl power. I don't care what anyone thinks. So as I said, I mm-hmm. went on the dating apps and I had photos of me bald. Oh. <laughs> uh, I had photos not only, but I had like one or two photos of me bald amongst other photos and I just figured if, if they want to know, they'll ask. Mm-hmm. And they did. And I had a lot more success that way. Um, and wow. when I when I have the conversations with them, I kind of let them ask rather than me bombarding them. But this, mm-hmm. I think I found that by doing it that way, it gave them a chance to absorb it themselves rather than the shock of me just coming out and telling them. Um, mm-hmm. Men can sometimes be a bit um, awkward when it comes to being emotionally vulnerable and open about things like that, especially Absolutely. immediately. So if you I guess it also, I guess, I guess it wheedles out um, those that, you know, aren't interested in being confronted with, you know, illness or yeah. long-term sickness. Yeah, mm. and like I, I, it's, I guess I, I struggled because it's. I think it's fair that someone doesn't want to take on a lifelong cancer partner with lifelong cancer. I mean, I. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard, but um. And I, for a long time, I thought, why would anyone want to? Why would anyone want to? But I, I'm a lot more accepting that. I should give people a little bit more credit. Absolutely. And don't take away their choice. Yeah. Yeah. Because they actually may want to. Um, I don't know whether you've read The Dash, the book. No. It talks about uh, your birth date and then the date you exit this world. And we all have The Dash. I have The Dash. You have The Dash. That little line that goes between birth date and the day we pass. And it's a poem that talks about um, how we spend The Dash you know, how, how we walk through the dash. And I guess one of the biggest messages that I've found in conversations that I've held with many people like yourself um, is very much about that choice around, okay, well, whilst I can, I will. And if anything, this blood cancer has given me that ability to just jump in and give it a go or um, be a bit more of a risk taker or, um, you know, okay, well, if someone's not going to come to the party, they're not meant to be in my world. That liberation, I guess, is something that, yeah, has, yeah. And I was just going to ask, is that how you have felt? Absolutely. Um, I wasn't big on taking risks 
my friends might disagree, but um, <laughs> I, I was very much, I put up a front that I was a risk taker, but I absolutely wasn't. I was scared of a lot of things. On my 30th birthday, terrified of highs, I made sure I jumped out of the plane. And wow. I, I, if I want to do it, I do it, essentially. Obviously, I'm, I'll ask the doctors if it's okay, whatever it is, but if I want to do it, I'll do it. I've travelled a lot more. I've cut people out of my life who didn't bring anything to the party. Yeah. Quite easy to do. Gosh, that was liberating. Um, mm. And just, yeah, like the dog, I procrastinated on the dog for years and years because of the dog and for the cat. But then I was just like, you know what, I'll make it work. I'm going to do it. And it's just, it made me, it's made me a happier person. If I want it, I'll do it. Immediately I have. It's the, a companion. Absolutely. And immediately I have the mm. means to do it. I didn't, I wasn't as well off financially before. But um, I guess I'm validated in that I, I, I am a strong person and I am a smart person and I do deserve it and do it i'm going to enjoy it yeah absolutely it'll make me happy do it. why why wouldn't i want to make me happy absolutely so tell me you know having listened to a couple of the other conversations you know you would have heard that um, myself and kate and vanessa who you know hold these conversations they ask for golden nuggets or you know they ask for messages that you feel having sat on the side of the fence of being a blood cancer patient, having faced treatment, having faced challenges, having changed the course and pathway in your life and having also accepted different aspects that have been taken from you, what messages do you, would you like to impart to someone who might be starting off that journey, who who may not be, you know, who may not be, um, who might be, needing a little bit of guidance as um, they face each day? Probably got a few things. Ask questions is a big one. If you don't mm-hmm. know, ask. No questions. Stupid. It's your life. My second thing would be if you think the doctor's wrong, you don't need – the doctor's not always right. If you disagree, you know your body. Um, if you need a second opinion, get a second opinion. Challenge the doctor if you feel like you want to challenge them. It is what it is. Honestly, the sooner that you can actually embrace that and believe that, the easier it's going to be for you to get on with your life because otherwise you're just holding on to things you can't help and what's the point if you can't change it, work with it. Therapy, absolutely therapy, and I think therapy for anybody, cancer or no cancer, I think it's just I think everyone should get therapy at least once or twice in their life just to learn to cope with things. Um and believe me, I love that. You've obviously had a very good therapist. My therapist is fantastic. Shout out. I won't say her name, but she's incredible. <laughs> um, and just just believe in you. You're, you're, you're the centre of it and make sure you're looking out for yourself. I'm not saying don't look out for other people as well, but make sure you're looking out for yourself because it can be very easy when you're in that darkness to um, latch on to other people to try and avoid your darkness, I suppose. Um but you have to focus on you because if you don't focus on you, no one else can focus on you, I guess. Well, thank you, Jen. I think that's just been some really powerful and lovely, you know, lovely things that you've shared with us here today, different Mm -hmm. snippets of who you are as a person. Um, 
I look forward to remaining in contact and maybe meeting Franklin <laughs> when we next get together. Um, I love that you've chosen, you know, you've made some good choices you. and you've certainly give some great, given some great messages for other people who are starting out on the journey or who, who might be further down the track of a journey but haven't given time to actually look at what ingredients they need to make their day-to-day a little bit better and a little bit brighter. They, they seem simplistic. The road is never easy. But, you know, it always starts with one step forward. Absolutely. And having people like yourself who are willing to engage and share conversations, well, it might be that person who's listening at 3 a.m. in the morning and what you've shared here might be the very thing that helps them make that first step. That Even if it's that, just that one tomorrow, step, it's all been worthwhile. Absolutely. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope that you found it helpful in some way. If you would like more information on today's show or our services, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Also, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe, share or even give us a rating on your podcast app. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.